Hello and welcome back to season two of Emma and Tom's PGC podcast, Fanfare Tom. Yeah, we're back with the uh, <laughs> new season jitters, the new term jitters. <laughs> I've got to tell the listeners what just happened. We have started episode one of the new season and Tom is busy sipping his tea. Oh. Caught. He's just turned into kind of some kind of seasoned <laughs> professional now who doesn't need to uh, to concentrate. Oh, you'd say more than one sentence before throwing me to the lions. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to keep you on your toes. Anyway, as Tom just said, this is episode one, and we're back with you at the start of our new academic year and the first of two episodes that we're bringing to you about curriculum reform here in Wales. We thought this would be really important as we step into the breach of curriculum reform, as we get ever closer to the start date of delivering this new curriculum for Wales. And... We've got a guest. Yes, we, we've decided since we've had to dust the microphones off and try and remember how to do this, we would need the ever reassuring <laughs> presence of Dr. Judith Neen. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So we are going to be having a look, first of all, at the challenges and opportunities for the expressive arts in primary and secondary schools. We'll be asking, will the new Welsh curriculum reverse the trend of expressive arts subjects slipping down the agenda in both age phases? Or do the new areas of learning and experience mean we might lose individual subject disciplines in favour of a watered down approach? So we've got two pieces of research that we've been out and presented in yes. public at conferences and uh, for those of you who did not make it to the sunny land of Swansea where we were presenting we're going to bring it to you in podcast form. We are and we're going to start off by engaging in a deep discussion with Dr Judith Nain who co-presented uh, with us well she didn't co-present but she presented something separate so first of all Judith can you just tell us a bit about the context and rationale for your research and how it feeds into the bigger conversation of curriculum reform Okay, then. So the research is part of a bigger project, Successful Futures for All. It was supported by WIZARD, which is the um, sort of national research centre for Wales. It involves all the different universities in Wales and is based at Cardiff. So it's it's part of a pretty important project looking at how the new curriculum is being embedded and introduced within Wales. And the part of the project that uh, I was working on and some people not very far away from me right now, (laughs) uh, we had a a lovely team, was working on the um, looking at how the expressive arts area is being framed within the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So there is a small team of us, including... Emma Thayer, Tom Breeze, Viv John and uh, Sean Davis-Barnes from Cardiff Met. And we were interested in um, not only how the expressive arts was being integrated together, but we were also particularly interested in how primary and secondary colleagues mm-hmm. were working together on creating this framework for the curriculum. That's really interesting. And, and actually, what, what's quite reassuring is that there seems to be a hell of a lot of research activity that has been initiated right from Successful Futures. Like we're looking in depth via these different research projects at not only the outcome of curriculum reform, but also the process is that important, do you think? I think it is. I mean, it, it's quite it's quite 
something what Wales has done. Wales has put the making and the creating of the new curriculum in the hands of teachers in Wales. So they have introduced pioneer teachers in Wales and pioneer teachers are those who are selected from schools across both primary and secondary and they've given these pioneer teachers various aspects of the curriculum to work on. The one that we've been looking at of course is the area of the curriculum looking at the expressive arts but it's actually quite something and quite radical, I would suggest, in, in terms, certainly of the UK, of putting curriculum design into the hands of teachers. Who would have thought that you would put curriculum design in the hands of teachers? So it's been really interesting seeing how the teachers have worked together from, from across Wales, from across different contexts and from different phases as well. So presumably said curriculum pioneers within the area of learning experience expressive arts were key participants in your particular study? Yes, so there was a group of them, uh, approximately 20, who worked together within an AOLE group, uh, Areas of Learning and Experience, which is how the curriculum is being structured within Wales according to six areas. One of them is the, the expressive arts. And these teachers were working on how to create a framework for the new curriculum. And obviously, Tom and I know this, but if you could tell our listeners, you know, what were our main methods for, for gathering the views, evidence for this study from these participants? And what kind of key questions did, did this study want to ask? OK, so it was fairly straightforward. Two main methods that we used. And one was to interview approximately half of the pioneer teachers so as I said there are around about 20 of them working on it we interviewed 11 of them and they were semi-structured interviews to allow the pioneer teachers to be able to go down avenues that were of interest to them so it was there was a semi-structured approach The other uh, method that we used was um, I went along to some of their AOLE meetings. So the pioneer teachers regularly got together uh, for two days every month Mm -hmm. to work as a group together to create this framework, to discuss how they were trialling it in school, to make sure that things were working well across both primary and secondary and across special schools as well. So um, I went along to observe some of the meetings. And that that was really interesting, actually, because I think some of these pioneer teachers have been getting a bit of flack about going on a jolly and and they they really did work hard. So uh, I was quite exhausted. They were working from quite early in the morning right through until five o'clock all all very cerebral stuff and Ooh, that, we're so. myth busting i yes. like this <laughs> and i guess um you've name dropped some really important strategies important methods that student teachers might encounter this year 
I would encourage anybody listening that doesn't know anything about semi-structured interviews or observations as methods to go and have a little uh, poke around in the library about these methods. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really reassuring, I think, to know that even later on in our academic careers, we're still using those methods that we're advocating and we're teaching our, our student teachers. Yeah, yeah. Martin Dens comes as the, the good uh, research guide. And, and that's a good starting point if you are looking further. So, Tom, you've got a question. Sorry. Yes, I've finished my coffee now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's come up for air. Are you I've sure it's coffee in that from cup? under the table, yeah. No, I was just, because uh, I, I remember from your presentation, Judith, you had a very hard-hitting slide in which you outlined the extent to which the expressive arts are being marginalised, I mean, a lot over in England, but to some extent over here in Wales. And so I was just thinking these AOLE teachers who were working extremely hard and extremely enthusiastically, they must have felt that they had an opportunity here to try and reverse a real backward slide that's been going on in the expressive arts over the last few years. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is quite shocking looking at how the arts have been faring within schools. There has been a huge big focus on the core subjects of maths, English and science and STEM subjects. PISA have been focusing on numeracy, reading and science. And over in England, the EBAC Uh, is this measure um, of entry and attainment which doesn't include the performing arts. So so you're quite right, there there have been huge reductions in the number of students who are taking GCSE and music over the last four years, a reduction of about 25%, and uh, very similar with drama and art as well. It was a real concern for the teachers involved, and, and the big glue that held them together. It was really interesting, actually, seeing primary school teachers, special school teachers, secondary school teachers working together over curriculum development, and the glue that held them together was their belief in the arts and wanting to bring back some sort of status to the arts within the school curriculum mm-hmm. um, and and they were working really hard in fact it's sort of making me go a bit goose pimply now they were that committed to it yes I think it is f- f- for us too I would imagine and, I, and I, I guess it's really good to hear that front and centre before we get kind of deep into the, the findings of your study it is really good to hear that because the draft curriculum documents uh, were released back in April of 2019 and I know that uh, uh, the enduring worry and part of the sort of initial criticism of the draft AOLEs is is the concern that subject disciplines uh, might be lost within an area of learning and experience, despite the fact that, as you rightfully say, we are now front and centre, or not front and centre, but we are named mm-hmm. on, as, as a curriculum area, the expressive arts. So that, that debate still rages on. Mm-hmm. What I want to ask you about next is that obviously you you had a clear, you've told us about your rationale, the context of your study, your participants, your methods. But I guess before you started to gather your own evidence, you did some wider reading yourself and you did some reading about integrated curriculum design. And I just wanted to know what that threw up. Yeah, it's quite, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because 
Um, the project was looking at the integration of the expressive arts, but there was also some integration going on between the different uh, phases of education. So we did some reading about that, and there's, there's some interesting interpretations out there mm. of, of what in- integration looks like in the curriculum. So, for example, Drake and Burns give some some really interesting and quite subtle distinctions. So they look at this terminology. We bandy this terminology, multidisciplinary, mm-hmm. uh, interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. transdisciplinary. And actually, they begin to pick apart what they mean. And, and according to Drake and Burns, uh, multidisciplinary is where the focus is on the discipline, but themes are used to bring them together. Mm-hmm. But the focus is very much on the discipline to mm-hmm. start with. Whereas um, interdisciplinary is looking for areas where there are common skills between them. So if we were talking about something like history and English, mm-hmm. it might be that the common skills are extended writing. Mm-hmm. So we put some projects, some work, some unit of work together, which is interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. which is applicable to both, but looking at those skills. Mm-hmm. And then finally, they talk about transdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And transdisciplinary is really interesting. It is where the topic or the theme comes first Mm. and very often the areas of exploration come from the learners themselves the questions Mm -hmm. that the learners ask Mm -hmm. Um, so you might have a project looking at dinosaurs for example Mm -hmm. and it would the uh, learning would come from the learners' questions. Mm. How big are dinosaurs? When were they living? What types of dinosaurs, etc.? Mm-hmm. Did they have eggs or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would come from there. So in that case, transdisciplinary means that the discipline, the traditional discipline, comes secondary mm-hmm. to uh, to the topic. Right. And it's quite an important distinction to make because that's actually something that's happening within the foundation phase of education. So the very early years um, within Wales, mm-hmm. um, they are being very much led by child-led learning. Mm-hmm. So sort of understanding the distinctions is quite important. Another term that's commonly used is cross-curricular, of course. Yes. And uh, Savage, you'll put me right on this one, Tom, because I can't quite similar reference here but it says cross-curricular is a sensitivity towards and a synthesis of the skills and understandings from various subject areas yes this is a quotation that really resonated with us uh, way back when we started to dabble in some cross-curricular uh, work between music and drama. Um, and I think it was something that when you and I, Judith, did mm. some work together with English and drama, we were also um, interested in this idea of being sensitive, but also synthesising. I think those two words were really kind of struck a chord. And that sensitivity maybe speaks to um, the notion that you mentioned at the start of individual subject disciplines and, um, you know, the the long-held love of and cherish of our our individual subject identities and associated skills knowledge dispositions concepts mm-hmm. so i think that's that that's an important quote but what i want to ask you in relation to the reading that you did and, and finding these sort of uh, classifications how important was that pre-reading then to your analysis of the results that you 
you gathered or the data that you gathered? Oh, that's a good question. Well, it was it was very important because it helps frame your response, really. It helps understand what's going on a little bit more. So, for example, there are different approaches from primary and secondary colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless you start thinking about the subtleties of meaning of whether something is multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary, mm-hmm. you sort of run the risk of missing out on, on these subtleties. And actually, well, w- when we look at the findings, you'll see that primary and secondary colleagues do look at things differently. Mm. They regard the curriculum in a different way, mm. which is fine. There isn't anything wrong with that. But what needs to happen is people need to have an understanding that this is the case, Mm. that actually when we are taking a transdisciplinary uh, Mm. point of view, we're doing this, so we need to bear that in mind. Mm. And I think having that reading and the research going on is is important for a thorough, deep understanding of actually what's going on. Thank you for that, Judith. And and again, I'm I'm flagging, I'm going to take the opportunity here to flag this up to our our PGCE um, or any, any teacher trainees out there who are about to embark on some research for the first time so you're you're getting an insight here to um, the importance of doing that literature review and using that as a conceptual framework through which to analyze the data that you gather and to hang it on and to to deepen your analysis so thank you for that Judith okay so let's get into the nitty-gritty then Having attended, or in my case, listened to your presentation at um, the BISA conference, we know that the broad findings that you, you found fell into the categories of challenges and opportunities. And that's kind of a very broad brush. But which of these findings do you think are going to be of most interest to our teacher trainees out there listening? Okay. The opportunities, if you think about the opportunities, first of all, um, which is it's easy to overlook. But the opportunities are to make connections with other areas. And that is it's, it's important for student trainee teachers to understand that working together is a valuable process Uh, and that came through very strongly within it i mean the most um the most positive opportunity i think uh, that came through which is what i've alluded to earlier which is giving status to the arts Mm. and ensuring that the arts uh, have their place a proper place within within the curriculum Mm. so I would hope that uh, what is happening in Wales within the curriculum in Wales should uh, be of benefit particularly to to art students but to but to everybody across the curriculum because Mm. Unless you've got a curriculum which is rich in the arts, mm-hmm. then you haven't got a balanced a balanced curriculum. So in terms of opportunities, there were some of the things that came through, as well as actually what we found was that the pupils in school, the learners in school, were also benefiting from much wider access to the arts. There was a lot more going on. There were days set aside for theatre visits, for mm-hmm. example, and days off timetable for that. And the response from the learners was very positive. Actually, 
the learners enjoyed having more time spent on on the arts in in general that's interesting because i know that experiences is a is another key feature of of the new kind of aole uh well all the OLEs, but specifically the expressive arts and and the notion that people should experience art just runs deep mm. with me and, and yeah. my own philosophy that actually, you know, they, they really do have an entitlement to get out of school and, absolutely. and to experience Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what's been eroded over the... I mean, it's definitely over the last 20, 20 years and that really has been eroded from it. So when it came to the challenges, I noticed that you divide it into challenges for primary and challenges for secondary. And that kind of fits in with what you just said earlier, which is that these teachers from the different phases came together with a very different view as to what was going on. And it seems that when they were considering what the obstacles were to getting this new curriculum up and running, different age phases saw the challenges uh, from different angles. They did. They work very differently and it's brilliant to get both phases together. I think this is what is very heartening about what Wales have been doing is as far as professional development goes, bringing both the phases together is really important for a a, a curriculum which has progression and continuity within it. But we also have to recognise they're working in very different circumstances. Yes. Um, So a primary school teacher is generally working with one class all day, therefore has a lot more flexibility on how that day works out, how it pans out. But a secondary teacher may be working with five different classes of 30 kids during one day. Mm -hmm. Um, They may be in different parts of the the music and art, maybe in different parts of the building, etc. So they've got uh, less flexibility in terms of timetabling. But as, as far as some of these key challenges are concerned, um, if we start with maybe the, the primary one, the primary colleagues didn't feel as threatened by this development as the secondary mm-hmm. uh, colleagues did. And I use the word threatened advisedly because when we get on to the secondary, uh, we'll, we can explore that. But primary felt this was very much in their way of working. They were used to working in an integrated way across the curriculum. Mm -hmm. They're used to working thematically and working under topics. So they didn't find that a threat. However, there were reservations expressed uh, about a couple of significant things. One was whether the subjects were actually being taught Mm -hmm. as opposed to being utilised in the service of, an, of another subject, right? So whether they were they were colouring things in to help a literacy lesson, or whether they're actually learning the skills involved in in art, and that's a challenge for them. Whether the, whether that's actually happening, whether the skills are being taught, uh, particularly say in a subject like music, and aligned to that really is their level of subject expertise. So primary school teachers do not have to have uh, a subject specialism Mm -hmm. and they teach, they do this fantastic job of teaching across the curriculum. But the the problem for them is that uh, if you've got a curriculum where the skills are being taught in lots of different areas, actually they need to have a level of, of expertise in order 
to be able to do that, to be able to teach music, to be able to teach dance yes. uh, or whatever. So does so, that kind of throw up extra potential kind of challenges and concerns? I note that you've got resourcing and, and training um, as yeah, kind of key, key things I, I think, linked to that. And, and I think some schools, that some of the pioneer schools had recognised that. They were auditing their staff. They were finding out what needed to happen, what extra skills, and that's exactly what needs to happen. Mm. So in order for it to be successful at primary, there needs to be an active and explicit auditing of skills so we know where staff feel happy where they need extra input mm-hmm. and resource yeah resourcing is another area as well mm-hmm. isn't it mm-hmm. and that's possibly where them working together under in an AOLE was beneficial to the primaries in particular because they were able to work with colleagues in secondary school who had contacts elsewhere mm-hmm. that were useful to them that mm-hmm. had resources and that so You know, again, that's another area. If Welsh Government really want to encourage that sort of cross-fertilisation of ideas, it would be really beneficial. Yes. And actually, I had the joy of teaching some PGC primaries this year, and there is a fear around the subjects of the expressive arts and particularly music. People do get very frightened of it and think it's very specialist. And one of the things that they all told me is that music is one of the things that generally gets uh, done by the PPA cover. So they weren't <laughs> having the opportunity to teach it as yeah. a sec- even when they had it on, on their, their timetable or whatever it, it would be at primary, somebody else was doing it. And so they were never addressing the fear around that. PE was the other one that was often yeah. um, given to the PPA cover. So they were in a vicious circle, really. They weren't able to get their skills, their subject skills up because yeah. they were not given the opportunity to teach it. So it does. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be recognised mm. and it needs to be addressed. Mm. Um, and, and, and as I say, going back to the initial point that I made, actually making sure that these... So expressive arts includes five different areas, art, music, drama, dance and digital media and film. And those areas all need to be taught, yes. not just used. They need to be taught within the curriculum. Mm-hmm. OK. And I'm guessing that there was a parallel with the challenges for secondary, but a slightly different manifestation in terms of the opinions of, of secondary pioneers and, and how they were integrating and, and using the expressive arts disciplines in secondary contexts. So what yeah. did you find there as challenges? Shall I? I'll read you some quotations from some of the teachers, Please if, if do. you like. This is talking about when they first got together as an AOLE. So these 20 teachers, they didn't know each other from across Wales, different contexts. Uh, the primary were saying, what's the problem? And secondary teachers were saying, well, we've got one quote here, which says, as an AOLE, we were just horrendous. We were all, I'm a music teacher. I'm an art teacher. This is just ridiculous. Another teacher says, we were in two camps. People were saying, we've got degrees, we've got specialisms. What value would there be in me trying to teach in an area that I'm not confident myself? Mm. And a word that was used an awful lot in the interviews, as you'll know, Mm. is to do with mindset and the mindset of of the teachers being quite close to looking as an alternative approach to teaching mm. of looking at an integrated or cross-curricular mm. uh, approach 
they actually, I used the term threatening before, and a lot of them uh, are finding it. I will use the present tense, I would say, are finding it threatening mm. um, within school. So a great deal of uncertainty with, with certain staff. And indeed, the, the pioneers came through when I went to observe them. Mm-hmm. They'd been through this process and they'd come together and they were working hard at creating the framework. But they were going back into their schools to try and convince colleagues in their schools within their departments. And I'm thinking of the secondary ones here. And they were coming across a great deal of negativity in some cases. Some departments were very supportive. But in others, uh, even within a pioneer school where funding was going in, Mm -hmm. in order to support the work and the trialling of the work, Mm -hmm. they were finding it very difficult to accept some teachers. So it it is going to be quite a stumbling block to overcome. And you used the word identity, didn't you, in your slides? And this is the thing that I've come to realise, actually, over the last couple of years of doing this job, that for a secondary teacher your whole identity flows from your subject. And this is why, as you're saying, it's a threat, isn't it? Because they feel that that whole kind of underpinning of their identity uh, comes under threat. And I was thinking, yeah, if people asked me in the street, what did I do? I probably didn't say teacher. I probably said music teacher. Yeah, and that was certainly the case in in the interviews. All of the secondary teachers identified by their subject. They didn't just say, I'm a teacher at so-and-so. Um, they would say, I'm a drama teacher, I'm a music teacher. They identify. They've trained in their subject. In order to qualify, they have to have uh, a degree or part degree in their subject. And this is this is how they've worked so far. Mm. So even what one teacher said, actually, I think of myself as an expressive arts teacher now. Uh, when I went back to the start of their interview, they had said, actually... I'm a whatever the subject was teacher. Right. <laughs> right. Gosh. So, I mean, a real period of um, transition for these pioneer teachers that maybe throw some light or is a, a microcosm of the process that all teachers in Wales who are having to navigate um, and uh, establish themselves as AOLE teachers now going yeah. forward is going to be a long road. I think it is. I think, but I think it uh, to go back to the idea of mindset as well. Mm. I think having the right approach and having the right mindset is Im- important as well, and not to see it as a threat to your subject area. I think still having subject expertise is important, but it's looking for where there are good connections. Um, And some of the when I was talking to the pioneer teachers, what came across as good practice was actually they were finding out about neighbouring departments, if you like, and finding out that actually in music they do this and we do that in drama and, and that would be a good connection. So so the idea of things being more connected mm. rather than feeling threatened about your subject is probably the, the way to go, I think. Which really triangulates nicely with your initial reading and research. So your quote from Drake and Burns, 2004, it's about making connections. 
and going back to savage but having that sensitivity but also an openness to synthesize um subject areas is perhaps um a message going forward Mm. that might help guide us it is and i think it's it's certainly of benefit to the kids in school the learners in school because if you have more a more connected approach amongst the subjects, the disciplines, the teachers, and you're making those connections for the learners, Mm. um, then it it can only be of benefit to them to to see that rather than them having to cope with everything being separate all the time. Um, I said in the the Beezer conference last week, actually, we, we don't work in single disciplines in life. We work across... Uh, different areas within in life and and young people need to know that really and I suppose just to round up this deep discussion um because I think you've you've touched on a lot of the conclusions there but I think for our for our teacher trainees who are about to go out into schools what would you encourage them to try and look out for or to question or to you know look at in more depth and detail as they as they move into schools looking who are who are now trying to make sense of these new AOLEs I think it's to observe, to learn from other teachers. Um, Some of the best lessons that I've received in life as a teacher and as a head of English or whatever is actually from other subject areas. So, you know, I've gone into science lessons, I've gone into D&T and looked at ways of working and seeing the connections there. So, you know, as new teachers are going in or... uh, new trainee teachers, student teachers, uh, very often one of the first things that you're doing is observations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're observing colleagues in the school. And I think not don't just observe within one area, observe across different areas, observe across different teachers and learn from, from other teachers. Great advice. Thank you, Judith. Right, we're going to have a first road test of our rejuvenated regular slots, slightly altered from last year. And uh, we're going to start with, I think, something interesting, Emma, because from your something interesting stems all the other slots. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Appropriately enough, it's a podcast. Well, it is. And it's got a little bit of a backstory to it. So... A novel that I have been reading recently by Deborah Harkness. It's a novel from a trilogy called All Souls, um, which if you if you liked Twilight back in the day, this is a slightly more, I would say, mature Twilight. I've been reading the first of that trilogy, which is called A Discovery of Witches, which has since been made into a TV series. I believe it's a Sky Atlantic um, TV series. I haven't seen it, but I've, I've been enjoying the book. It led me to an Einstein quote, which I'm going to talk about next episode. But the Einstein quote took me to a website um, called Farnham Street, which is a website which was founded by Shane Parrish. He's a computer scientist um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and he's got a podcast called The Knowledge Project. Now, I know that's about five different leap pads. (laughs) We got there, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Inception, but I think this is a really good example about how if you're reading a novel, it can send you off on a tangent um, that you hadn't expected. So from 
Discovery of Witches to Einstein to Shane Parrish, the founder of Farnham Street and his podcast, The Knowledge Project. (gasps) Okay, (laughs) so... On that podcast, um, Shane Parrish interviews a number of different sort of intellectuals, uh, influential um, thinkers, doers, speakers. And the Farnham Street website offers the promise of self-betterment via reading, reflection and lifelong learning. And in this particular episode, he's interviewing somebody called Warren Berger, who is an American journalist and host of the website amorebeautifulquestion.com. And what Warren Berger found, he became really inspired by the world of design and technology and innovation. And what he noticed was that innovators at the heart and core of what they do ask really good questions. He's published two books recently, Warren Berger, the most recent being The Book of Beautiful Questions, 2018, and a precursor to that, a book called A More Beautiful Question. So his big thing at the moment is improving questioning and um, and he actually speaks to the world of business. He's a, he's a business journalist, but as part of his research, he's, he's looked into the field of education. Um, and it was in this podcast that I found some really useful tips for well-being and also something to try. So I'm going to outline some of those things now. So back to Berger. First of all, in terms of well-being, he advocates working to a creator's schedule. He makes the distinction between a manager's schedule, which is kind of short bursts of activity with short-term goals, so very kind of precise apportioning of your time, and a creator's schedule, which is blocking off large blocks of time. He blocks off actually three to four hours with no meetings, no phone calls, free time to create. And these blocks are further governed by rules that you, the creator, self-govern. So you've got to be quite disciplined. He says you shouldn't give up and get up when it gets tough because actually creative processes, notoriously, we can fall into a portion of that broader bit of time where we, we're self-doubting, where we think, oh, you know, the ideas just aren't flowing today. So I'm, 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 it's, just, it's just not working. So I'm going to give up. He actually says when, when that happens, you should stick to the allotted time. You should commit to it. You could take a short break if you want to, but on the proviso that you're committed to coming back and having another crack at it he says it's so easy to give up when you're feeling like it's not flowing but if you can get past this then things start to to flow and to click but I thought what was really useful about this kind of distinction between a manager's schedule and a creator's schedule is that it gives you permission to block off time where you're not you're going to say to yourself I'm I'm not going to be influenced by the day-to-day humdrum and the immediacy of emails I'm going to switch them off and I'm going to give myself permission to immerse myself in whatever creative endeavor which could be you know writing a scheme of work which could be you know writing your lesson plan that constantly gets interrupted usually by email traffic by you know other people wanting your time and what he also does is that he blocks that off in his calendar and he actually stays faithful to it when others ask him uh, you know can I have you for a meeting at this time you know he doesn't see that as time that could be given up and could be relinquished um, for other things. He sees that as, you know, really important time in his day that will help him be productive. I think we learned a lesson on that, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago, Emma, because we had to put together our presentation for Beza and 
it got to a week before uh, we hadn't done any of it because we were very, very busy with email traffic and people and meetings and things like that. So we blocked off, I think it was four days. Felt a bit strange doing it and maybe slightly doubted that we were going to be able to stick to it. But stick to it, we did. Did the work, had a couple of really wonderful moments in there where we really got flowing through some work and finding some things out. And came out of the other end, not only having done the work, but also having realised that you can actually do that sometimes. <laughs> you just have to be a bit strong. We, we did. We succeeded. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And sometimes it can be really, um, I, I, I find emails and also things like social media. So I can get lost in Twitter and sometimes it has a really negative impact on my well-being because the more I read, the more I think, well, I don't know that. And I, and I, I should know that. And it can be a bit of a, a vicious circle. Whereas, you know, just giving myself permission to be working on a creative schedule, uninterrupted, just me, or, or with another can be really good for your mental health and your well-being. Yeah, definitely. That was a fascinating podcast, actually. I mean, there's a whole area there really about questioning, wasn't there, that was was really interesting. Because as teachers, we're obsessed with coming up with the right questions to Absolutely. ask our pupils. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. So there were some really key takeaway points from Berger's research, actually, on questioning. So first of all, he draws parallels between the decline of creativity. And this is something that um, Ken Robinson speaks about as, uh, you know, as we as we age, we actually become less creative. But he draws a parallel with also the decline in curiosity. So hence the desire to want to question and to create and to innovate. He says, we will do what we're rewarded for doing and we don't get rewarded for questioning. He says the message we send to children from a very early age is that the reward goes to the person who gets the answer, not to the person who asks the question. And he says that the question eventually gets seen as a distraction from taking care of business. So this can kind of follow us through to adulthood. I mean, how many meetings have we all been in? <laughs> where actually, and I've been guilty of it, where somebody asks a question and I thought, oh gosh, you're derailing the meeting. You know, <laughs> we want to get out of here. <laughs> he described it as career limiting, didn't he, in the podcast? He said that person can can really do their career some damage by asking too many questions. Yeah, and, um, and actually that permeates and and affecting managers uh, you know who who then at, at the sort of really negative end of this spectrum seeing people who ask questions as being dissenters and and those who aren't to be trusted and and you know maybe telling off colleagues for asking questions and being being seen as being quite awkward yeah, derailing been in that meetings. workplace yeah most definitely and the other thing that struck me as I was listening to this on the way into work this morning was how are we not guilty as teachers of sometimes coming out of a lesson uh, or maybe a, a class here in university and saying oh that went really really badly the students just hit me with loads of questions yeah yeah, I, I've, I've, I've certainly, and I, I've, actually, his research sh shines some more light on this, particularly in relation to teenagers. So he's he's interviewed teenagers, and it's revealed that there are um, potentially two perceptions. Um, teenage perceptions conspiring against the desire to question. So the perception that not knowing is not good, 
therefore revealing some kind of weakness. So if I don't know the answer, then that's going to show that I'm weak and therefore I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to reveal that by asking a question. And secondly, the perception that asking a question reveals that you care about the content, which is a bit uncool. <laughs> so this is like a, a toxic mix of you know I'm not going to ask the question because it shows that I don't know I'm also not going to ask the question because why would I care (laughs) (laughs) you know that that's that's um that could be a a really um difficult mix um and could be the reason why our teenagers in our classrooms don't ask questions he speaks of knowledge he says that if we know something then we don't have to ask so as we get older and become experts we all then become experts in our domain and don't feel that we need to ask questions and this might cause stagnation and he says that innovation could be the antidote to that and it kills that routine he talks about adopting the position of a novice and you can have two different types of questions so when when the when the interviewer sort of asks him okay so how do we coach people to ask better questions he says that um, a good question is born out of authentic curiosity um, and he says that there are there are two types of questions that we can ask. We can ask as the position of an outsider or the uninformed person or the position of the insider and someone who is informed. And one adopting a position of not knowing and the, the kind of uninformed, it, it can be really useful at attacking a problem or um, an approach that has been kind of long-standing. I'm thinking about, you know, within the realm of teaching, we, you know, we've always done assessment for learning in this way um so why would we change it we you know we're all experts at it we know we're doing it well a novice and i'm speaking to you teacher trainees out there now coming in and innocently asking well why do you do it like that he says that can be a really powerful catalyst for change because if you adopt the eyes of a novice and ask questions as the uninformed it could gain you a fresh perspective on something that you've been doing for a long time. So there we go, teacher trainees. You're going to have a lot of novice questions, I should imagine, roundabout now. Don't be afraid to ask them because a lot of our colleagues in schools do tell us how much they value the opportunity to look at their practice again from the ground up and you can be the catalyst for that so don't be afraid don't be afraid um, and if you want some kind of concrete examples of of something to try when you leave a lecture write down the first question that comes to mind which is truly rooted in authentic curiosity and see where it leads you adopt an outside or uninformed perspective on something that you know really well thinking about what Judas said about being an expert in our subjects well Take something that you think you're you're really expert at and ask a question from an uninformed perspective. It might give you a new, fresh perspective on, on how to deliver it to your learners. And also consider how you might provide opportunities for your pupils to formulate and ask questions in your lessons. Wonderful. That's uh, not as much food for thought as a massive feast for thought. Thanks, Emma. <laughs> Sorry, I, I got a bit excited. It's our first first episode. So. <laughs> Saving these up. Brilliant. So that's our first episode done. 20 more to go. And uh, <laughs> we will be back with a continuation of this next time where we will be looking specifically at how we get uh, cross-curricular teaching and learning working in the expressive arts and maybe how we don't. Thank you for coming along, Judith. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. 
That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Special guest this episode was me, Dr Judith Neen. For more on the different types of integrated curriculum mentioned in today's episode, you can read Drake and Burns' article, Meeting Standards Through Curriculum, from 2004. The podcast that Emma recommended today is The Knowledge Project, hosted by Shane Parrish. This episode was also brought to you by the team of builders renovating the corridor outside Emma's office. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. We're off to feed Tom some more coffee in time for episode two. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching. 